Anthony, what's going on, pal? Not a lot. How are you? Thanks for coming on, man. I'm a real big fan of your work. Oh, I appreciate that. Thank you very much. Happy to be on. Under a week, October 13th is the big day. Your first book coming out, The Captain, a memoir, you and David Wright. What made you want to write and tackle this book? Yeah, you know, I've covered David Wright since I first got into the business, since I started out as an intern in 2007. So I've known him for 13 years at this point. And, you know, watching that, watching his career, watching him go through it, I gained A, a lot of respect for the guy, and, and B, you know, kind of a, uh, almost like watching a movie play out in front of you in terms of the things that this guy did, battling his body, obviously having some great years at the start, but then battling his body, um, the, mental, the, the emotional and mental anguish that he went through trying to get himself back on the field, and then obviously the physical element of that as well. You know, I just thought it was a good story. I thought it was an inspiring story. I thought David was, you know, a great uh, person to write a book about for those reasons and for the reasons that, you know, this guy's very popular for for for, for good reason. Um, you know, not just among Mets fans, but among baseball fans. He's, he's always been considered kind of a gentleman of the game. So I kind of wanted to dig into that. I thought it was worthwhile. And you know, once David got on board, we, we kind of went from there and people asked me, you know, was it what you expected in terms of working with David? And my answer is yes, it's exactly what I expected. <laughs> he was a true pro throughout it all. So it was great. Getting David on board. How do you approach him with this idea? Do you hit him up and say, hey, I'm going to write a book about you. You want to do something together? How does that process work? Well, to be honest with you, I, I, you know, this was my first time, so I wasn't sure exactly how to go about doing it. Okay. Um, but I, but I did know that I wanted, you know, like I said, for all the reasons I just said, I was interested in, in writing a book about him. And in my mind, to be honest with you, I thought, uh, you know, it would probably wind up being a biography. It would be a book about him. And uh, even if that were the case, I was going to need, you know, ideally need his cooperation and lots of his time and talking to him about it and this and that. So. Towards the very end of his career, I approached him and I kind of said, hey, look, you know, uh, and I went into my little spiel and I said, I'm a little interested in, um, in writing a book about you. I remember distinctly the conversation. We were in Nationals Park in Washington. Uh, he wasn't active yet. He was taking VP and stuff. And he was flattered, which kind of blew me away that, that someone would be interested in doing that. And he said, you know, that sounds good. Um, let's talk after the season. And we did. And the more we got to talking about it, I think the more he kind of wrapped his head around them, uh, the idea that, you know, maybe he wanted to have a little more control over the project. Maybe he wanted to be able to shape it in exactly the way that he wanted as well. And so it kind of turned into, uh, OK, well, let's let's spread a memoir then. Let's do it that way. Um, certainly, I've, I've never written a book before, so I've certainly <laughs> never written a memoir before. But um, like I said, working with him, it was it was easy. A lot of a lot of phone calls, a lot of FaceTime. You know, we got together a bunch of times before COVID. Uh, obviously, we did a ton over the phone as well. Even not even because of COVID, because uh, he lives out on the West Coast now. I'm here in New York, but um, it was great. It was great, and I was happy. I was really happy that we wound up doing it this way as a memoir because I think it it created an even more in depth look than you would have gotten any other way. Are you ever nervous, I have a lot of authors on, a lot of sports guys, that someone else was going to do a book on him and maybe release it before you? Was that ever like creeping in your mind? A thousand percent. <laughs> it's, fun. it's funny, you know, it's funny you ask that because, you know, looking back and I, I'm not aware of anyone who was going to do it, um, but that was very much in my mind. And I was thinking at the time, you know, 
on the one hand, I felt like I was kind of uniquely situated to write this book as one of the few guys who had covered you know, the bulk of his career, who knew him very well, who he trusted. Uh, but on the other hand, anyone could just go and write a book. And if someone wanted to write a David Wright biography, they don't need his permission to do it. They can just go and do it. And so, yeah, I was nervous, especially at the time back in 2018, when I first approached David, there was so much hype surrounding David at the time. He was, he was going out, he was doing his rehab. He was making this much publicized, last appearance in a Mets uniform, the second to last day of the season. And yeah, I'd be lying if I, if I didn't cross my mind that, boy, I hope someone else doesn't beat me in the punch <laughs> on this. So it was that, that was, and I, I you know, you, uh, I probably pestered David a little more than I should have at the time, <laughs> but I wanted, I was like, dude, you got to give me an answer because, you know, I, I want to get going. I didn't say it in those words to him, but I, I, I did want to get going. I'm glad that, um, you know, the, another, I would say, benefit of it being a memoir is that this is, you know, this is it. This is a legit book from the source. You'll never get this again. You'll never get this from anywhere else. So it's uh, it's cool and it's unique in that way. You have, like I said, I have a lot of authors on. You have a normal job. You work for MLB. You're the Mets beat writer guy. Take me through the process of trying to, you know, divide your time with writing a book because I know you did a ton of interviews and I want to hear who you interviewed to also doing your real gig. How do you manage all that time? I, I'm loving these questions. These are... um you know, these are things that I've obviously been thinking about for the past couple of years, but people don't generally ask about them or care about them. Yeah. Um, because if, like you said, it's a full-time job. And more than that, it's, um, it's not a seasonal job. It's a, it's a 12 months a year job, but obviously I'm much busier during the summer than I was uh, during the winter. And to be honest with you, I had it in my mind that, you know, I would find time throughout the workday in June, July, August, whenever it might be, especially if the Mets fell out of contention, you know, I could find time to go and transcribe interviews and write portions of the book. And the reality was no. I mean, the, my job <laughs> at MLB.com requires, requires so much uh, time and energy that I just couldn't bring myself really to write much during the season. So I, I did as much as I could. I did almost all the interviews over the 2019 summer. And I had a little bit on paper. I probably, the book wound up coming in, I, I want to say, um, right around 95,000 words, something like that. And I probably had about, I don't know, 15,000 on paper heading into <laughs> October, November of 2019. And then I just wrote, and I wrote that whole off season, November, December, January. And that's when I wrote basically, I don't know, 60, 70,000 words, whatever it was, more than that. And uh, yeah, so it was, it's tough. It was tough. And my, my, you know, I didn't take book leave. I didn't take a vac. you know, I, I did, I shouldn't say I didn't take a vacation. I did take some vacation time and use that to write the book. Um, I'll tell you one funny story is we were getting down to it. I actually had a wedding, a friend's wedding in Puerto Rico in January. And I had the math in my head. Okay. I need to hit 90,000 words by X by March 1st was my, or, uh, yeah, by March 1st was my deadline. So that means I need to write, uh, I think something like 800, 900 words a day between then and now. And I was at my friend's wedding in Puerto Rico and we got upgraded to this lovely um, block of rooms over the, <laughs> the overlook the ocean or the Caribbean sea, or I don't know my geography too well, but it was great. So I would go out there every morning. I had it in my mind. I'm going to write a thousand words today. And I, I'm not allowed to go hang with my friends. I'm not allowed to go to the beach. I'm not allowed to go to the pool. I'm not allowed to do anything until my thousand words are done. So it was very motivating to, to write it and get out there. And, and uh, yeah, it was able to finish it on time. And now, obviously, 
we know the players you interviewed and stuff. Give me some people that you interviewed that we wouldn't expect to hear from that you uh, you reached out to. I think the most interesting one, and no one will have heard of this guy, but I think the most interesting one is a man named Alan Irby. Uh, and Alan Irby was David's travel ball coach when he was a kid. And the guy is fascinating. He was a bird dog scout for the Cubs, I believe, at one point in his career. He was a semi-pro pitcher. He played in Europe. He played in Africa, I believe, on a, I don't know if it was a travel team, some sort of like adult barnstorming league. Um, but he wound up kind of always being involved in professional baseball as, as a scout. He knew a lot of people. And he also was a psychology, he was a professional psychologist. And he brought a lot of that to his coaching. So when David was 9, 10, 11 years old, they would go and they would sit and they would, and A, they would do some wacky stuff. Like they would, they, he would have them sit in the field and visualize different situations and think about things in psychological terms, which I don't know if most people's nine-year-old little league teams are doing that. <laughs> um, but he would do things like he would have them memorize poems, like Casey at the bat, trying to instill this love of baseball in them. And, and one of the things that David talks about a lot is he was kind of like a, a, a real, at the time would be considered cutting edge youth coach. And they had bunt defenses. They had first to third plays. They had, they, they had all these things. And, and we actually have a picture in the book that's of a progress report that David got when he was, I think he was 11 years old. And it looks like a professional scouting report that this guy, Alan Irby filled out. So they were doing all these things. And David said when he, when he got drafted, when he was 18 and he went to his first stop in pro ball and pro ball, excuse me, in, in Kingsport. And they were teaching them all bunt defenses and nobody else on the team had any idea what these various defenses was. And David's like, I, I, we had more than this when I was 11 years old. So that was a fun interview. Um, talking to some of his childhood friends, his college friends, um, or not college friends, but guys you know who are um, you know, high school friends and, and travel ball teammates, things like that. That was cool because you know I knew Jose Reyes. I knew Michael Kinnair. I covered these guys. I had a sense of what they would say about David. The other guys I'd never met. I, I didn't know who they were until I started working on this book. So it gave a different perspective that I didn't previously have. Anthony, maybe because of maybe how his career slowly faded away before our eyes, but people forget Wright was on a Hall of Fame track early in his career. You're around the Mets and the fans all the time. Do you feel that people like kind of forgotten how special he was? I think maybe they did until 2018 mm -hmm. when he came back for that final game. And I think him being out there and, and everything about the end of his career being so public, I think there was a lot of reflection at least from the fans on how good he really was but you're absolutely right he was on a hall of fame track and i think that's probably a big part of what makes what happened with his back and the physical ailments that's what makes it so sad for lack of a better word is because if he was just some guy and his career got short cut short because you know he couldn't play because he's, he had this degenerative back condition you would say well that sucks but you know happens a lot of guys don't have the careers they want but this guy was special he was special on the field he even with his limitations is clearly the best offensive player in Mets history the best hitter in Mets history um best position player in Mets history and off the field he was as I said earlier kind of the consummate gentleman he represented the franchise so well he was not just the captain but when he was named the captain, it was like, well, duh, of course, he already has been that for many years. And now he just has the title to go with it. So 
given all of that and what he meant to the franchise, I think that's kind of kind of what what made the ending um, so emotional and so sad, not just for, for David, but for Mets fans, uh, you know, Mets fans of a certain age, and it's a pretty wide age range, uh, considered like this was their guy. This was the guy that they grew up, and he was the Mets' answer to Derek Jeter. He was the Mets' multi-time all-star. He was the guy that, you know, you could you could hang your hat on if you were a Mets fan. He was popular around baseball, even if you weren't a Mets fan. So um, I think, yes, maybe it got lost in the weeds there for a little bit when he was having those rough seasons, playing through injury, trying to get back from injury. You, you forget about how good he really was. But I think when you look back at his career on balance, no, he's not going to make the Hall of Fame. But yes, he is still one of the most impactful players uh, who's ever played in New York. I love because... Right when he burst on the scene, he was a stud. Like his first real season, batted over 300, over 100 RBIs. He was a first-round pick, but he wasn't this like flashy prospect like, oh, we got this kid coming up. He kind of just did everything right. What can you tell me about, because everyone's going to ask you about his time in the pros, about his high school career, because I know he batted over 500 one year to his time in the minors. Yeah, he, he was, you know, it's funny you say that because he talks a lot about people will ask about coming up with Jose Reyes and Jose Reyes was that guy that you described. He was the flashy five tool prospect. He was the guy who was number one on all the Mets prospect list, top 10 baseball America, whatever you want. And, and David wasn't necessarily that guy. He was a first round pick, um, but he was a little lower down on the prospect lists. He didn't have a ton of hype until he probably reached double a and started really crushing the ball there. And then it was very quickly onto the big leagues. And that's when he kind of started getting hyped up as the next big thing. Um, but the reason why that's important is because his whole mantra, and it sounds corny, it sounds cliche, I get it, but it was, I'm going to outwork everyone. One of the things I think people don't realize is that, you know, there can be a level of insecurity for a lot of these athletes because you're going against the best of the best. And in David's case, playing travel ball, uh, playing high school, getting scouted, he was playing really good competition, but especially at that time when we didn't have, I don't know, perfect game or whatever kids play these days. And we didn't have high school rankings, a thousand kids deep, Like he didn't really know how he stacked up to other kids going into draft day. He wasn't sure if he would go, you know, in the first round or the, or the eighth round, he had a team, I believe it was the Expos called him and asked if he would take uh six to seventh round money. If they, if they, um, if they drafted him a little earlier than that. And so he had no idea. He had no idea where he stacked up. Um, and it was one of the things that he always, that I think is, is one of the more interesting passages in the book was he said, I wanted to outwork everybody, but I, but I really meant that. So on Christmas, on Thanksgiving, on whatever other day, I made sure that I would go out on those holidays and do something baseball related or you know, take some swings in the cage, take some ground balls, whatever it was, because I knew that the other kids weren't doing stuff on that day. And if that gave me a tiny fraction of a percent of an edge, then that was my opportunity to do it. And that was kind of his mindset going through and getting into the minors, because I think there was a lot of insecurity if he was going to be that guy, if he could be that guy, if he had the physical tools to be that guy. And looking back, you know, obviously it seems obvious that he's a very talented baseball player and that he was going to make it, but I'm not sure he was at that age so sure. Who was his guy growing up? Did he have a favorite player? Um, well, he loved. Obviously, he was a, he was a Mets fan. That story is well known. He uh -huh. grew up watching the Norfolk Tides. Yeah, so 
he loved all of those guys, Daryl Strawberry, Dwight Good, and the guys coming up and then further into the 90s. Um, you know, uh, Greg Jeffries is a name he shouts out a lot. But I, one of the guys he really liked was Cal Ripken Jr. And the Orioles would probably be his American League team. Uh, if not, you know, he grew up a Mets fan, but the Orioles were the closest team to him growing up in Virginia, uh, being a third baseman. He grew up a shortstop, but, you know, shortstop third base. Uh, Cal Ripken Jr. was a guy he really looked up to. And I think for a lot of those same reasons I just said in terms of, um, you know, that lunch pail, blue collar mentality. Obviously, Cal embodied it with his consecutive game streak. And that was the type of player that David wanted to be. You mentioned early on that 07 is when you started with the Mets, right? Mm-hmm. 06 was Wright's all-star year. He was a top 10 MVP, all-star, game seven of the NLCS. And then that's it for nine years. So, you have to be thinking in 07 when you come on here like, okay, I got this team that's going to be for the next 10, 15 years running neck and neck with the Yankees, always in the playoffs. That long gap from that time till the time he made the World Series, didn't he think the postseason was going to be like an every year occurrence right after that? That's exactly what he thought. And, and so he readily admits that you know, he wished he had savored that 2006 playoff experience a little bit more because he looked around that room that he was in, he looked at the roster, he looked at the young nucleus that they had, especially with him and Reyes and Carlos Beltran was signed for a long time. They had a ton of veterans in that room. They had future Hall of Famers in that room, Tom Glavin, Pedro Martinez. Um, and he said, wow, we're, we're going to be here for, for a long time. We're going to be here every year. And so as a result, his first experience of the playoffs in 2006, he was 23 years old. You know, he, he, he thought, oh, well, this, stinks that the Cardinals beat us, but hey, the Cardinals are a great team. They outplayed us. They deserve to win. It's it's no shame in losing to them, and it's okay because we'll be back next year. Well, they weren't back next year. They weren't back the year after that. It's some pretty crushing you know, performances down the stretch, and next thing you know, he looks up and it's 2015, and he's got a, degener- a degenerative back condition. He hasn't been to the playoffs in nine years, and I think that's what really allowed him to appreciate the 2015 season, especially the 2015 postseason, so much. Um, A, because of everything he had been through physically, just managing to make it back on the field personally at all. But B, because it had been nine years, because he had been uh, exposed to that reality that he wasn't going to make it here every year. And, And more than that, that this could be his last chance at that point, the last time he ever makes it there. And I think he was able to appreciate 2015 with that perspective in a way that he was never able to appreciate 2006. Silly question, but writing a book like this on a player, was there a baseball book or biography you kind of based your template on for this book? Not really. Um, I read a lot of baseball biographies, uh, just or at least skimmed a lot of baseball biographies just to kind of see what other people had done. Um, but, you know, well, the first thing is the book is in David's voice, so I need to make it as, as faithful to his voice as possible. And it's not going to help if I read something about Pedro Martinez or Mariano Rivera or Derek Jeter, because those guys have their own voices and they have their own opinions and, and this and that. Um, so I, I did read those those books just to get a sense of you know, how to do this type of thing. But really, I thought David's career kind of had a natural narrative arc in that you know, you start a childhood, but then obviously he bursts onto the scene, like you mentioned, in, in 2005, 2006, as this hot young player that's going to make a difference in New York. And then you've got kind of those natural inflection points where he struggled. He struggled in 
he struggled in uh, 2007, 2008 team-wise with those collapses. He struggled with the injuries that were sapping his career in 20, in, by 2013, 2014, 2015. And then obviously he makes it back in, 25, in 2015. He goes through some more injury issues and in, in later in his career. And then 2018, the, that final kind of climax of everything. So I thought it was a neat little narrative arc that was already built in. And I didn't necessarily need to take a template from someone else. But yeah, there's a lot of good books out there. And I'd be lying if I said I didn't certainly look through them and, and try and figure out maybe some helpful hints for how to do this one. Is it weird as a reporter? Now, this is coming from a fan. And I'm very fortunate to interview like all different cool people. But is it weird like, you know, you're talking about the glory time with Wright and the playoffs in the World Series and then bringing up, you know, the painful years of 15 to 18? Is that a touchy subject that you knew you had to address, but were you never spring it up to him? Not necessarily because, you know, A, it's something, it's, you know, he, he's, he's not, uh, you know, he's a realist. He, he, those things happened. The Mets didn't make the playoffs in 2007. Um, he's the first to admit that they failed in 2007. He has his opinions. You'll read in the book about, you know, maybe some people might crush the Mets for losing in 2006 or losing in 2008 uh, or 2009. And, you know, those ones affect him in different ways. 2007, I think, is the one that really sticks with him that you know seven seven games up with 17 to play um but no i think you know he's a smart enough guy to know when you go into this that not everything is sunshine and rainbows and you know frankly with this biography i there's probably more sunshine and rainbows than you would get with a lot because he is such a liked guy and he's had such a a a good career in which there was so little controversy really no controversy when you look at what he's accomplished so um, you know, with that, I think you, you realize that you, you can't just pretend that the bad things didn't happen. You can't pretend that 2007 collapse didn't happen or that your back injury didn't happen or that various other things didn't happen. You wouldn't have much of a book otherwise. <laughs> so, um, but it is interesting to hear his perspective because I think it's different from, from what fans in the stands might have witnessed during that time. What's he proudest of on the field moment, like with his time with the Mets? What thing does he talk about the most, or do you hear maybe the you know the glee in his voice when he talks about? I think there's two things that stick out. Um, if you use the word proudest, I think proudest, I would say, being named captain mm-hmm. of the Mets is the one thing that you know it's a it's a lifetime thing. They can't take that away from him, and it's something that he wouldn't have gotten if he didn't have the respect of his peers. His fellow players in the, in the clubhouse, um, management, ownership, basically everyone he came across and worked with on a regular basis with the Mets. So to be looked at that way by other people was a very proud thing for him. And I think that's, that's you know kind of the number one thing he takes away from his career on an individual basis. Um, as far as just sheer career highlight on the field, I think that would be the making the World Series in 2015 and and then for him personally hitting that home run in 2015 in game three, uh, just the culmination of a really difficult year for him, of a roller coaster year for the team, of making it back to the playoffs like we talked about before, not knowing at that point if he would ever get there again, not knowing even if he did, if he would personally be able to contribute. So 2015, for, for a multitude of reasons, was number one in his book. Did you enjoy the process of writing this book? I know you didn't party as much as you wanted in Puerto Rico and you were, you know, a lot of stuff going on. Did you enjoy the process of writing a book? I, I did. It was, you know, going into it, 
people had asked me in the past, um, you know, because I've covered the Mets for a long time now, and you know, would you ever be interested in writing a book? Would you ever be interested in writing a book? And, and for me, the answer was always yes, but not just for the sake of writing a book. I don't, I don't need to have my name on the cover of a book and just to say that I did it. It would have to be something because I value my free time. To be honest with you, I value my, uh, you know, that sort of thing. So it would have to be something that I cared about, that I was interested in, that I could really invest myself in. And this was it. A, a guy that I said off the top that I respected a lot, who I thought had a very interesting career. And so I tackled it and, and knew what I was getting into and and really did enjoy the process. Um, you know, I, I'm not the type of, I, I, it sounds weird to say because I'm a professional writer, mm-hmm. but I'm not the type of person who I sit there and I enjoy the writing process. I think most, <laughs> most people don't, it's not very fun. Um, but one of my, uh, my, my mentor, the guy who preceded me at MLB.com covering the Mets, Marty Noble, he used to always say, I don't enjoy writing. I enjoy having written. And, and that's very much how I feel about this. I, I very much enjoy having written this book. I'm so glad that I have it. Um, but I'd be lying if I said I loved every minute that I was there transcribing hours of audio and, and writing tens of thousands of words. That part's not necessarily fun. On a personal level, did his father was a police officer down in Virginia? Did he retire when David made it to the majors or when he signed a big contract? He retired. I'm, I'm not sure exactly what year he retired, but he retired. Yeah, right around around that time. He was still working, I believe, when David signed his contract in, in 2013. A couple things on you now. Was it always baseball writer or bust for you that was the plan i mean you have to have some sort of reality to it that this is a very competitive industry and you know even if i were the best up-and-coming baseball writer in the world at age 22 it might not work out so i I got very lucky and certainly i had you know maybe some plan b's in my back pocket but this was always what i wanted to do i loved it i worked for my high school newspaper my college newspaper i did all that stuff from a young age um, and super have been have been super happy and thankful every day since that i get to do this for a living as a beat reporter and you know it's like when people like oh sports talk radio it's the best job in the world and then you hang out there for a while you're like oh my god you have to come up with content and stuff from 07 to now obviously a lot's changed is it difficult um stressful maybe always having to be tweeting always fulfilling these crazy fans constant need for up-to-date knowledge is it overwhelming that you always have to be on yeah, I think it's I, I think people don't understand necessarily the 24/7 nature of it. I, I tell people that I'm in a in a very uh, not nearly as important way, but I tell people that I'm like an ER surgeon. I'm not always working, <laughs> but I'm always I'm always kind of on call because of, you know, if I'm talking to you right now on a podcast and the Mets make a giant trade, well, then I'm going to have to I'm going to have to handle that. And you could be out to dinner, you could be doing this and that. And it is 24/7 and you know, people, I think some people have this image that I go to City Field and I sit in the stands with a with my hot dog and my beer and I watch the game and have a grand old time and then go home. Like, no, it, it, it's a job. <laughs> and, and you know, it's actually pretty, it can be pretty mentally draining doing all, doing all the things that I need to do, whether that's writing, social media, uh, TV work, this and that. I mean, there's a million ways that you kind of have to put yourself out there these days as a beat writer. And, um, but it's it's kind of similar to what I was saying before about selecting the right book project for me. Uh, you know, it's it's a job. It's stressful for sure, but I enjoy it so much that it's 
I never have a day where I wake up and I'm like, oh, I got to go to work today. And, and I, most people do. A lot of people do anyway. So I'm, I'm very cognizant of that and, and thankful for that. One thing on Twitter, uh, I think you know what I'm going to bring up. Do you remember your famous tweet that went crazy viral in 2014? The balk? Yes. Can you tell everybody? I actually just you know, scrolled and got it. Do you remember what, exactly what it was? It, well, I don't remember exactly how it was worded, but it, the, it was late in the season. It was in September. We were in Washington, and I tweeted. I, I always, during games, I'll go through and I'll screw around on different statistical sites and, and you know, plug in a million things. And for every, you know, 20 searches that I do, maybe one will turn up an interesting nugget. And I just so happened to turn up what I thought was an interesting nugget that day, which is that the Mets were about to become the first team since – for decades, it was a while. I don't remember the exact year, but to go the entire season without balking. And I tweeted out, <laughs> and I want to say it was two pitches later. It was. It was two pitches later. Dil- Dylan G committed a balk. <laughs> and if I remember right, I believe it wound up being a, a not inconsequential play in the game. I, I think the Mets wound up losing that game. And I remember going into the clubhouse after the game. And Dylan G, who is one of the nicest guys you'll ever cover, he was standing there at his locker and he sees me and he just looks at me and he just goes, really, dude? <laughs> I was, it was, you know, you try and be respectful and quiet in the clubhouse when they lose after the game, but it was, yeah. it was pretty funny. All right, you ready to finish up with some quick hit questions? Let's do it. Best baseball movie of all time? Oh, Major League. Favorite city to cover a game besides New York, obviously. San Diego. You and I hanging out at a bar here in New York City. Who's the coolest person in your phone that if you texted them, they would text you right back? David Wright. That's actually a good answer. Ever been star- <laughs> <laughs> Ever been starstruck by meeting someone, a player, maybe uh, announcer, somebody? Uh, I grew up in Massachusetts. I'm a big Patriots fan. Mm-hmm. And I think when you see people out of context, sometimes it can be a little jarring. I walked into a Cuban restaurant once in Key West, and who else walks in right behind me but Bill Belichick. Oh, and I, I couldn't speak. I was so <laughs> flustered. One show you found yourself binge-watching during quarantine that you never would have watched? The Good Place. Most bizarre story you ever covered by being a Mets beat reporter? <laughs> Could you, I thought these are quick hitters. You got time for 100? <laughs> Most bizarre story. Jeez. I, wow. Um um, gosh, I'm, go- I'm I'm totally blanking because there have been so many crazy ones. I think, um, I think covering, uh, maybe, maybe K-Rod getting arrested after a game at City <laughs> Field was probably one of the weirdest ones. You're down in New York City now, 2 a.m. What's your go-to food? What food are you craving at 2 a.m.? Probably pizza. Of course. And how about this one? How about one prospect or player you thought was going to be special, but from one way or another, it, d- it didn't turn out? I remember, uh, I just, as I just said, I was grew up in Massachusetts. Uh, I grew up very close to Pawtucket Red Sox, and we used to go, my dad and I used to go to games a lot. And at the time, on the Norfolk Tides, was this hot prospect. Mets fans will remember him, Alex Ochoa. And I used to watch him play right field and have, make some of the most spectacular throws you will ever see. And I thought he was going to be an absolute star. And, and he was a useful big league player for a while, but just never turned into that guy. Your first book, dropping one week. 
The Captain of Memoir, you and David Wright. I can't wait to get it. So give the plug where everyone can follow you, buy the book, and all that jazz. Yeah, The Captain comes out October 13th. Please pre-order, pre-order, pre-order. You can do it at Amazon. You can do it at Barnes & Noble. You can do it at most local bookshops if you want to support local. I always love when people do that. So The Captain with David Wright, Anthony DeComo, October 13th. Um, it's going to be fun. Anthony, this was a blast. Good luck with the book. I can't wait to read it, and uh, keep up the good work, brother. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. See you later, my friend. All right. Bye-bye.